Your time is now. The world needs leaders. It's up to you to answer the call. Be better in business. Be better in life. Joined by our host, Chris Book. This is Leading by the Book. Our guest today is, in fact, the inspiration for the HBO TV show Ballers. (laughs) I look just like The Rock. Would you vote for The Rock? Absolutely. I think I would, too. Yeah. How can you not? He's awesome. Just pure show business. The Rock's the kind of guy, if you come home and you find your spouse and The Rock together, you're like, huh. Okay, do you guys need anything? You need a drink? Can I get an autograph, please? Yeah. I mean... He's The Rock. He's awesome. Talk about legendary example of collegiate failed athlete. Nah, I guess failed's a strong word, but non-significant athlete to what's funny is people think this guy's an overnight success, right? I think he's the highest paid 128 mo- million movie last year. star. The guy was doing backyard wrestling matches for years, right? Before the WWE. And it's, yeah. it's been fascinating to see how dynamic he's been throughout his career and, yeah, obviously Ballers is quite entertaining. It's funny. People, when they hear, oh, you work with athletes, is it like Ballers? I said, well, I think the yachts in Miami are part of the issue, not part of the solution. Perhaps. Do you get royalties from the show? Well, you know, I can't talk, uh, can't talk about the screenwriting that I put out. I think if you, if you shaved your head, I could see the resemblance. Well, you'd need to get a little more ink, and you'd need to put on about... 400 pounds. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm missing probably about 80 pounds. Our deadlift's Oh, more than that? Yeah. That's all natural, though, from him, you know? Uh, But he seems like a nice guy, too. He he does seem like a nice guy. Anybody ever said a bad word about him, you think? Well, maybe they have, and they're just not living anymore. Yeah, I don't, you know, that's the funny thing about all the tabloids. He's actually loved by everyone. Sometimes that's a bad thing, I suppose. Yeah. I like that guy. But anyway... Still haven't introduced you yet. So the man that is the inspiration for worldwide success, HBO hit TV series Ballers, is indeed Eric Averill. And we go back, I was doing the math, we go back, I want to say 18 years, just about. Yeah. That, that hurts to say. Young, uh, young freshman, Arizona State University. Yeah. Yeah, so Eric is, I'm sure he'll tell you very briefly, grew up in the OC. So we can't get through a conversation without that. It, I, there's no better place to, to be raised. How many places make a TV show that, that people actually want to be a part of? I mean, the OC is... Well, there was that, that TV show in West Virginia. Well, that's true. The best part is we never <laughs> referred to it as the OC until that show came out, but it uh, definitely became a little catchy phrase. I was always a little envious of that. Every single time you would remind me for those of us that grew up in Wisconsin, although Wisconsin's grown on me as, as I've gotten a little bit older. So anyway, so you played baseball. You pitched at Arizona State. You uh, had a very successful career there. You transitioned to professional baseball with the Tigers and the Mariners. And then post-career, you have transitioned into wealth management, specifically for very high-profile professional athletes. So I think there's a lot to probably get into here because it's been fascinating to see on the outside and to get to talk to you a lot more recently 
But the first question I have is, you went to ASU, your brother went to UCLA. Did you throw at him? <laughs> so the story goes, you know, it. Um, I had the privilege to to pitch against him twice, but the the first setup was was interesting. I was a freshman, he was a junior, and at the time, I think we may have been ranked one or two in the country at, at ASU. We had Dustin Pedroy on the team, Andre Ethier, very, you know, uh, iconic type team, and uh, in UCLA, they were they were okay, but. Uh, like two brothers, there's a lot of smack talking going into into the weekend. Uh, I actually led the country in ERA at the time, and so uh, to say I was a little uh, overconfident is is to put it uh, kindly. Oh yeah, you just no hit Hawaii, hadn't you? Yeah, yeah. It uh, that's right. The thing is, is I actually wasn't that good. It was just that Dustin and Andre and these guys scored 13 runs a game. So it was literally <laughs> like, just keep it under six and you're going to win no matter how good you are. But so I'm facing Brandon. My mom is just having a panic attack in the stands as usual. And I get him O2 quickly. And Brandon's a big power hitter. He's think of, you know, the hit 30 home runs, strike out 200 times. So like and, he well Troy Gloss went to UCLA didn't yeah, he? It's kind of your yeah, Troy Gloss type. Yeah, Troy Gloss guy. Yeah. And uh, Adam Dunn is more of a comparison contact oh to damage ratio, just not a lot of contact. And, That's a really hurtful statement you just yeah. made. <laughs> That's a really <laughs> hurtful uh, thing to say. I tried to elevate a fastball up, you know, to change his eye level. He stuck his arm out and uh, and took a pitch. He says I threw at him. The reality is I was just trying to set up a combination, a little a little change up down in the dirt to punch him out. But uh, here nor there, next at bat, he he granted out on the first pitch. So he has a lifetime batting average of zero against me. <laughs> I still think you threw at him when I was there. Yeah, probably. Yeah, you slipped out of your hand. It was an accident. <laughs> so we actually, I was thinking about this too, um, when I was figuring out how I was going to share your intro. We actually were roommates for a little bit. My junior, junior, junior year, yeah. And junior then year. I think after the offseason, because you left after your junior year, and I want to say it was my senior year, yes. I was racing Ironman, and I think you you were back working out. So I forgot about those days. And a little known fact, and something I've always harbored a great deal of resentment towards you because of, <laughs> I received a lifetime ban from NCAA women's soccer for an incident in which you played equal part and you received nothing. And I always felt that it was because of your performance in Omaha that you received preferential treatment. You know, I don't know that President Crow over at Arizona State University would would see the facts the same way. Um, <laughs> I saw him about a block from here the other day. Did you Sitting really? outside having coffee. Classic. Yeah, it's one of those things that, that people say athletes may get a little preferential treatment. I think it was just that, you know, you were probably more of the aggressor. You, you called the ref Tony Danza. It, okay, b- b- back it up. Back it up. Because there was no profanity used. Truth. There was no no alcohol used that day. No In fact, alcohol. So th- the backstory here is we would tailgate for girls' soccer's game, soccer games. I don't know why. But the parents were a little bit more raucous than we were. These parents would show up and start hammering down beers. And we were pretty tame guys. And so 
as we as we we'd go into the game, we would we'd be a little loud. We we're very supportive of uh, of the Lady Sun Devils, and at the the soccer stadium at ASU, the first row is very close to the sideline and sort sort of elevated, maybe five six feet in the air. And there was an official that looked like Tony Danza, and I did not call him Tony Danza. What happened is he collided with somebody and was flat on his back in front of us. And I believe I leaned over the railing and said, who's the boss now, Tony? Yeah, just in that tone of voice, too. Very calm, just who's the boss? And so they stopped the game. Security was called. The police were called. We got hauled out of there. Escorted from the stadium for being too great of fans. Yeah, it's not a funeral. There there was no profanity. There, There was nothing aggressive said to the opposing team. We were just being loud. Yeah. Now, I do remember distinctly Mike Davis laying on the ground and saying, I'm from L.A., I know how this goes, and he put his hands behind his head and had to get drug out of there. Oh, man. You know, think, thinking back in, this must have been 2006, seven. this happened? No, I think it might have been five. Five. 2005. Yeah, because it was right when you got back from, from Omaha. Yeah, it's 2005. Back then, I would have never thought anything, but uh, Mike D., you know, I understand why he did that. Kind of. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he grew up next to like the, the, the Olsen sisters, so I don't think Mike D's situation was representative of a lot of the situations. Didn't he go to the Brentwood but, school or something? Yeah, or? I mean, Mike D is. I think the, I think the guy works for the FBI now. He's, you know, he's he'd got, be great. He'd be a great fed. In, interesting Instagram, <laughs> that is for sure. We'll have to put that in the show notes. Follow Mike Davis. I got to find that. I haven't seen him in, in years. So anyway, so we get drug out of there, and... We go home and have a little bit of a laugh about this. Well, after, as we're getting drug out of there, after Eric is on the phone with the president of the university talking about the uh, unjust treatment we were receiving, which is <laughs> factual. And so I don't think anything of this. You know, months later, I go to graduate, and Eric's off playing, playing with the Tigers, and so I'm you know stuck all by my lonesome in Tempe. I go to graduate, and I, I go to file for graduation, and they say, well, no, uh, you you can't graduate. And I'm like, well, why? And they're like, well, we don't know. It just says you can't graduate. So I go home and a couple days later, I get a, a like a very formal letter in the mail from Arizona State University telling me I need to go appear at a disciplinary hearing. And I'm like, for what? I've completely forgotten about this. And so I go in there and there are seven angry women like around this like congressional table type panel. And I'm sitting there and they're like, Mr. Book, we assume you know why you're here. I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> and, and then they start reading this, this thing to me, this declaration. They're like, you verbally assaulted an NCAA official and you emasculated an NCAA, or excuse me, an ASU security officer. And I'm like, well, for, first of all, the guy looked just like Tony Danza. You don't understand. They left out all the positive support for the Lady Sun Devils. Yeah, we were the only people showing up to those games. And so in order to graduate college from the Arizona State University... Lifetime ban, right? Lifetime ban. I had to sign a notarized letter saying I would never go to an NCAA women's soccer game again. I think we should go this next year. You You think they're checking IDs? Yeah, you think they have facial recognition? You know, maybe we'll do like a Facebook live do they, or something. Do they take back your degree if you go to this NCAA? I don't know what the repercussions are. I, I don't know. Maybe the NCAA is too distracted. They've got this whole uh, basketball scandal going on with, with Rick Pitino. So. 
Hopefully. You just can't uh, just can't pay people these days, huh? I, I guess not. Well, U of A can. That's, that's true. Yeah, that's fully supported. Yeah, I'm I'm on tape saying I was going to pay somebody, but I should still have my job. Okay, Sean Miller, you're good to go. <laughs> All right, so you get, you leave ASU, you go play professional baseball. What's that transition like? You know, it's it's interesting. I look back for a lot of athletes, and and I can only speak on the baseball side. Is you grow up your whole life with a dream of becoming a professional athlete. It's it's something that you know from being a little kid, you watch it on TV. And I think the one thing you don't realize is the gap even from college baseball to the guys you see on TV. Um, And I was coming off of just an emotional high. We just played in the college world series, uh, was fortunate to, you know, have some, some good games out there and had a good run. Yeah. Really good run, really good run. And, and I was looking back at the situation, uh, that if I returned to ASU after my junior year, you know, was there anything really that I couldn't accomplish that I already had? And in the short answers, I just didn't think that that team was going to, was going to be in Omaha the next year. And so it was a, it was a decision for me to, to sign. And it was funny, you know, you, you go from Arizona state college world series, staying in these nice hotels, being just treated like a King to, I signed with the Tigers. Their spring training's in Lakeland, Florida. Scenic. Um, it's an old Air Force Army base, and they call it, uh, you know, this whole Tiger Town. And you expect mentally to drive into this like beautiful maybe town where there's nice restaurants and hotels or things going like an actual town. But what they meant by town was baseball stadium and old Army barracks that you moved into. <laughs> And so I get dropped off this place and it's literally bunk beds, white brick walls and Latin Dominican music just blaring with open prison showers. And welcome that was, pro ball. that was your welcome to pro ball. Oh, and by the way, here's, here's uh, I think at the time, 1100 bucks a month. Yeah. Or maybe only six like, months a year, too. only six months a year. And you had to pay for your living and stuff. So it was a, it was a, interesting transition into pro ball um, but to say the least it it was a great experience I think one of the funny things is um, you know you mentioned you're from Wisconsin he doesn't disclose that you know so he wants people to think he's from Milwaukee but he's Good from town. he's from this fantastic town Beloit Wisconsin and, which, which is where Geraldo got his nose broken at a KKK rally which I totally understand because the beautiful thing about minor league baseball is you see all the tiny towns that nobody's ever heard of. And uh, I actually had the privilege of visiting Mr. Book's hometown. And oh uh, our tour guide was <laughs> this bubbly, fantastic human being who had a sweet ride, uh, also uh, known as a yeah, a mom's. I think it was it was it an Astro van or Dodge Dodge van or what kind of van was it that? Was a thing? Dodge Caravan. Dodge Caravan. Didn't we take so. the doors off it or something yeah. and, and, and like fly around town Nam style. Yeah, those those were poor decisions of minor league baseball. But uh, yeah, transition obviously was uh, was a great first step to try and uh, that journey towards realizing a dream. But it was also, I think, the first dose of reality that life doesn't go perfect and that 
it's really hard to accomplish something great. So it uh, pro ball didn't turn out the way that that I drew it up on paper, but learned a lot through the process. Well, and to be fair, you know, going back to leaving, one of the reasons to leave after your junior year is because that's when you have the last semblance of leverage you're going to have. Hundred percent. Yeah, after your senior year, you know, from a signing bonus perspective and and any other perspective for that matter, there's no reason that the teams really need to heavily invest in you. And the more a team invests in you, obviously, the more runway you get, the more support you get. So it, it wasn't just a matter of I think accomplishing everything you could accomplish at ASU or what that next year would have looked like. But do you have any injury trouble in Pro Bowl? <laughs> yeah, I may have uh, may have had a, an elbow issue or two. So I ended up having you know the famous Tommy John surgery, two thousand and seven, uh, and that was that was a big part of just my my athletic journey, it, even dating back to high school. Really, the only reason I ended up on campus at Arizona State was uh, I sprained my UCL a month before the draft, my senior yeah, year, and and ended up at ASU, but. Going through that injury, it, it taught me a lot of things. When I was ASU, I had to become a certain pitcher, a control pitcher, taught me how to pitch, how to be effective. In pro ball, it was a hindrance because of a velocity issue. But uh, that was also, I would say, the big first valley of my life, of playing baseball your entire life. And then all of a sudden, 2007 – I was done for an entire season. So 12 months of not being able to pick up a baseball, of being able to play in games, being removed from your team. I think that's the other thing about pro ball is while you have friends, make no mistake about it, it's a business. And you realize very quickly you're looked at as a commodity. So it's really on your shoulders of how you – take care of yourself. And if you come back, um, and so it was just a really weird feeling of going through that surgery, but it was also the first entrance into doing what I'm doing now is I was bored out of my mind. I was back here in Tempe, uh, rehabbing and I just couldn't sit around. So I was done with my physical therapy by like nine in the morning. I had a chance to go intern at it was at the time it was Smith Barney, owned by Citigroup, and this is 2007, so right before the financial crisis, yeah. and, and it bleeded into the financial crisis. So it was kind of one – it was definitely the end of my baseball career, but an entrance and an opportunity to see the financial world. So g- going into that financial crisis, did anything stick out at the time? Like, Did you learn le- – because you were an intern, so you don't quite have the, the full responsibility like, – were you just eyes wide open in terms of what you're able to soak up? Yeah, it was because you're a really unique situation when you're inside a financial advisory world as you're watching the financial markets crash and people, not only clients, but these actual financial advisors or stockbrokers, you know, is really what they are to watch their personal retirements. You know, a lot of them had, in this case, Citigroup stock. So their own 401ks were crashing. And what really stuck out to me was how much the advisors didn't have control of the situation and were, um, and I think for a lot of clients too is, the markets had been going up for so long that people, people just thought it was easy. And I think people got careless with a lot of the, the decision-making and when things 
happened, you know, as quickly as they did. The thing about the financial crisis is it happened so quick and so severe. There was no, hey, this is kind of coming. I mean, the markets were dropping, right, 800 points a day, 1,000 points a day, and you just saw panic. Like I, I learned so much of that of being trying to have really clear expectations up front with clients and then very candidly being more conservative than than people think they're comfortable with and i relate that to this year i mean we've experienced really since the post financial crisis like incredible markets mm-hmm. for a decade and this first year i mean the markets are down around 10% and people are in sheer panic. It's because they've never experienced it. And so I think as an intern sitting there and watching that, I learned a lot. I learned that um, you have a responsibility when you're dealing with other people's money, or I think when you're leading that just because things are comfortable and good, doesn't let you off the hook to develop your expertise and to, to continue to push through communication um, that was a big deal. And then it, I have no problem sharing this story is I learned a, a real hard lesson between the truth of financial advice and, and a stockbroker is I didn't sign for a lot of money, but I trusted this guy at, at um, he's now at UBS and he works with athletes. And, but at the time it was, it was my advisor and he piles me into like five individual stocks MBIA, oh, which no. is an insurance company that goes bankrupt, oh, no. Bank of America, Citigroup, and then Freeport MacMoran because we could look at our building and see their building. And literally, oh, it was gosh. less than six months. I mean, it pretty much all disappeared. And here I was. I was like this, you know, 25-year-old kid. And I literally watched all my money just disappear. Oh, my gosh. And when I look back, I realized it was a really tough lesson at the time with such a small amount of money now that it, it doesn't really matter. But I saw how people are, were making recommendations on people's life savings, and I just said I'd never do that. You know, it was, uh, So a lot of lessons out of that. Well, so we need to get more into, in a little bit here, more into the way you run your company now and why you exist, because I think that's a fascinating, fascinating story um, that you guys tell. But looking back at that time, first of all, where was this guy in the diversification side? Like, like obviously, <laughs> you know, for, first of all, like we talked maybe last week, you can't beat the market picking stocks. No. It's not going no. to happen over the long term. But maybe if you're trying to portray this thing as you can, you might at least diversify instead of just going all fin stocks. Yeah, all financial <laughs> stocks. Oh, jeez. Okay. That's it's too big to fail, man. I, uh, evidently. <laughs> but when, when you were still playing, what was the approach towards money? in the clubhouse. I mean, did you see guys actively mismanaging it? I know we have, you know, we, we definitely have some friends that, that signed for a lot of money and some of them, you know, even, you know, when, when we were 18, it seemed like the most money in the world. Right. But you know, the tax man comes and then everything else comes. You know, I think the athlete gets a bad rap in the sense of it's very easy for the outside person to go, they make so much money. How do they end up bankrupt? How do they end up in a bad situation? But what you realize being inside the clubhouse is you're given an amount of money based off of your athletic skill set or ability, not because you have a skill set or an aptitude to deal with money. And so it's inevitable that it's going to be a train wreck that you hand, whether it's a high school kid or even a college educated kid like myself, who was a finance major the kid that comes out of Stanford or Vanderbilt or these schools is 
there's no life experience. So a lot of people, if you're not an athlete and you mismanage your first 35,000, 40,000 a year job, like you really can't get yourself in that much trouble, right? You can open up some credit cards, but when you start with a million and a half bucks, you can create really bad habits. I mean, I laugh at stories. I mean, I had a close friend that signed for a lot of money and we were knuckleheads at ASU. We'd be at Ruth Chris, you know, ordering Dom Perignon <laughs> at, you know, 19, thinking we we're cool kids and just not understanding. I think that was the analogy of, it's like, hey, I put my ATM card in and I took out a thousand bucks and it didn't even move the decimal. And so I think you just start to create these bad habits that inside a clubhouse, it's the perfect storm because you have no skill set massively insecure about not wanting to look stupid. And this is the biggest issue we try and address is even when you've made the right decision to hire some people, there's such a language barrier between the two that a lot of times somebody will come in and start talking to you and it just sounds like a foreign language. And because you're young and insecure, instead of stopping someone and saying like, Hey, Chris, I literally have no idea what the heck you're saying. They just sit there and they shake their head. Yes. And so now all of a sudden they've got somebody handling their money that they really don't trust and they don't know what's going on. So that's how fraud happens. And then in that industry, you have the yet the yes man deal because the athlete can make so much more money. It's a great potential account that people don't want to actually speak up and say, Hey, Chris, you know what? You shouldn't be spending your money that way. Hey, have you thought about that's a bad decision, you know? And, and so it's a really tough aspect that mismanagement is not like the exception to the rule. It is the rule. It's particularly in baseball, which actually has probably the best success rate of managing money out of the, out of the athletes. They're four times more likely than, than the average American to file bankruptcy. And so it's just, we really look at it and we try to reiterate with a lot of our young clients that we actually think you are intelligent. We think that you have the ability to do it. It's just that, you spent your whole life developing a different skill. And so it's the clubhouse, the way that money is approached is just terrible because it really is. It's just monopoly money. Well, and for a lot of these guys, they've never failed at anything. And like you said, they've been doing one thing their whole life. And so there's either on one hand, what you said, not wanting to look stupid, not asking questions. And the other hand is this idea that I've been touched by God. I've got the magic touch and I'm going to go do whatever I can here and it's going to be fine. So that's the scary thing. If you, to your point, if you flip it to the other end of the spectrum, what you're seeing a lot right now, I literally just read an article before I came over here that Forbes put out a 30 for 30 athlete entrepreneur investor list of these athletes that think they're entrepreneurs or venture capital investors. And you can argue maybe you play for the Golden State Warriors and you're Steph Curry and somebody over at Benchmark Capital or Excel or you know one of these big VC firms gets off on the idea of hanging out with athletes and so they let you piggyback on a deal that you really shouldn't be in but you get lucky. Well, let's be honest, and that's how it happens too. That's no, exactly- nobody wants to talk about it, but that's how that whole thing goes it's down. It's 100% how it happens. Like the Steph Curry's of the world, he's – he's lucky. He's obviously put himself in a certain position or a a Kobe Bryant who has this incredible career meets Jeff Steeple and starts a venture fund. Like that's the way you do it. What the way you don't do it is mismanage your money and then think you're a baller 
and start throwing money at venture capital deals or private real estate when you have no idea what you're doing and just the inherent risk of venture is incredible. And that, that is the most dangerous thing for the athletes that have started to make real money. So when you start to make those seven figures and you start thinking that private investments is what you should be doing, that is where you get your butt handed to you. And really scary. That's what we were talking about the other night, you know, in, in the eighties and nineties, they would always warn the athletes, you know, the, you don't want to meet the girl in the lobby of the hotel. You know, right. you, you get home from the game and you've got all the women waiting there in the lobby of the hotel. That That's going to be bad news for a long time for you. Well, now it's dressed up a lot differently. It's some guy with some can't miss VC deal, or there's a new app we need you to invest in or all this. And, you know, there's never going to be enough money. There's always going to be somebody with more money. These are very competitive people. And to your point, they want to come off as if they have more than this native skill. They might be really good at something, but you know, here's the deal. Every athlete wants to be a rock star. Every rock star wants to be an athlete. And so they, they get involved in these deals. And you really saw it on the real estate side where, hmm. you know, how many guys lost tons of money, you know, around crisis time because they had no idea how to manage interest rates. They had no idea how to project manage a real estate development, all of these things that went into it. And they're looking around like, I just lost $60 million. How the hell did I do that? Yeah. And I think a, the, a big warning, this isn't just for the athlete. This is this is one of the things that I've learned having the privilege of, of managing the fortunes of not only the athletes, but some successful business individuals is the devil really is in the details. And very few people understand what they're signing. And it's one of those things that none of us like legal contracts but they're 30 pages for a reason, right? They're trying to figure out how to shift the risk onto somebody else. And I think of the real estate situation, you know, the famous story, Mike Matheny, the, the former manager of the Cardinals, he had lost everything in real estate. And what it came down to is he had personally guaranteed stuff. He didn't know he had personally guaranteed Mark Brunel, same story. I think think he was in for like, I want to say 30 to 60 for that deal. Huge. Yeah. John Elway, who's, you know, known as a Stanford educated, bright individual, went into business with a friend and I think it was 10 million in real estate. And so it's one of those really interesting things that very few people enjoy paying attorney's fees. And I am not a proponent of paying extra fees that you don't need to, but you have to read contracts. You have to understand what you're agreeing to. And it goes back to that old adage, if you can't understand what you're investing in, you shouldn't invest in it. And people just don't do the due diligence. They want they want the quick dollar. And that's where just a lot of risk could be mitigated if people just slow down in those deals or hire. I'm not saying you have to read the legal contract. I think it's a prudent exercise for everybody to know what they're getting into, but hire the right attorneys and it's the one area that I look at, especially in our athlete community. They've got a financial advisor. They've got an accountant. A lot of them have business managers, which are worthless. Um, they have sports agents, but there's no personal attorney, which is fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, and I guess sometimes those agents are attorneys, but very limited scope in terms of what they do. So you you start seeing this. You start seeing athletes managing their money this way. Like you said, monopoly money. Your career, you know, takes a little bit of a turn, and you see that there might be some writing on the wall there. 
what do you do? I go through that. Oh my goodness. What am I going to do with my life moment that I think every athlete does because you'd never even thought about it that, I mean, I was, I was convinced, right? Like life was going to look like the big leagues with a wife, a dog, two kids and a white picket fence. And then all of a sudden it shatters. Um, but I was fortunate that through some friends, some, some of the donors at ASU, spend some time with me to kind of walk through things. And what I knew I really wanted to do was to be an advocate for the athlete. And so I had wrestled, do I want to become a sports agent? Do I want to become a financial advisor? And it was interesting, the sports agency thing, I got offered a few jobs, but all they wanted me to do was go chase down my buddies, you know, and trying to get them to flip their agency. So I'm like, ah, that's, that's not what I wanted to do. Um, so I went the financial route. The funny thing is, is I found out when I started at Morgan Stanley, they just want you to chase your friend's money down and, you know, bring it in, even though you don't know anything. Um, but I started at Morgan Stanley because I was passionate. It was something that I saw through my own experience uh, with my own money and teammates in, in 2007 that your finances aren't just important when you're an athlete, they're important for the rest of your life. And the other thing that I realized is money touches almost every aspect of life and money might be the result. It's very rarely the root cause of what's going on. And so I saw money as a way to actually have an impact on people's lives, to be able to have deeper conversations than just, you know, how to make the best investment. But like, why are you using money the way you are? Why are you taking this job? Why are you pursuing those things? And so when my career was over, it was a pretty easy fit um, to join a team at Morgan Stanley. And so that was, yeah, that was the next logical step. So would you say money is kind of an amplifier? So, you know, I've heard trauma surgeons talk, for instance, and they're saying, you know, when, when you see some, like a family member come in with something, it either brings the family together or tears them apart. Is money sort of the same thing in the sense that it, whatever issue you have, wherever you're at, if it's good, if it's bad, money just makes it more? 100%. I am a very strong believer that I don't know that money really changes people. I think it reveals people and it, then it amplifies it yeah. that money all of a sudden allows you to act in a certain way in our social structures that you're unaccountable. So you can be who you want to be. And a lot of times that's not, not a good person, right. Or just issues are amplified. Like you said, it doesn't have to be some drastic thing, but it's, um, a good example that I see often is you might have someone who grew up with not a lot of money and money becomes this, this litmus test of power And so their whole thing might even be, and it might manifest itself in a really strange way. We have a client has a couple million bucks, successful business guy. Money has such like a prestige to him, but he's so prudent and frugal with his money that he, but he's almost like a victim in the sense of he gets really concerned how everybody else spends their money. You know, and it's so there's like this power deal of so money means so much that it's like, oh, that guy spent this much on that vacation. I can't believe it. Or like, why is he still working? He's never going to be able to retire. And it's like, 
It's because you're taking the way you feel about money and trying to place it onto somebody else. And so the amplifier in relationships and, you know, life choices is, it's huge. It's just, I think amplifier is the right term when it comes to money. So going back to that exit from pro ball and, and going into the corporate world, for people that are transitioning, that are entering new chapters of their life, what, what's your advice to them? The first thing that I always say is, especially if we're sp- talking specifically about your money. Well, I'm, I'm actually talking more broadly on this. Now, now money would be an interesting yeah. facet of that question, yeah. but just – First of all, I, I don't think people experience enough change in their life be, because we get comfortable, we get complacent. Now, right. there are times like pro ball where you don't have a choice. You can't sit in your cubicle and work that same job for 40 cool. years. It's, yeah. you know, the I stadium security is going to come take you away. That, that's the fascinating thing is, is sports in general forces you to have a midlife crisis at a very young age because not many 25-year-olds have been fired and their entire dream crushed right or just just the reality or for a collegiate athlete it's the same thing it's you've had this identity for 22 years oh by the way you graduated now you're no longer playing soccer basketball golf football xyz and so you go through this transition and i think what i've learned going through transitions and really finances it touches everything and so i think it's been estimated people will go through about 20 transitions in life whether it's having kids kids leaving changing jobs all the you know death those type of things is first and foremost you're hyper emotional in those times so sometimes the best thing is to do nothing what i mean by that is don't make drastic decisions in an emotional state and the best advice I can give somebody who maybe is not in transition and it's a much different conversation with somebody who's in transition now, as opposed to someone who's pretty happy is always prepare, right? It's, it's like the, it's the perfect advice that nobody takes of preparation is the key, but it really is, is I think at all my life transitions and bigger major moments, I was left making a lot of them on my own because I had neglected the advice and the relationship with really important mentors throughout my life. And so the advice I would give in transition is, is like many counselors find really wise people around you because you can't see your blinders when you're in the middle of the the transition it's really hard to see clearly. So who are the people in your life that you can go to that are not going to be emotional with you? Aren't going to be your yes people that are going to tell you like, it's like the worst advice ever. You know, my mother-in-law, you know, unfortunately lost her husband in a tragic car accident and just devastating. You know, Carol, my mother-in-law was 43 years old when her husband uh, died I've seen an incredible woman put the right resources around her, but I see a lot of the bad advice. It's like, do what makes you happy. You know, don't, don't worry. Just do what makes you happy. That's the worst advice during training. Amen. Like the worst advice. Follow your heart. Yeah. It's, I mean, it sounds good. It, it sounds good on a t-shirt or a postcard. Yeah. But so it, if it's on one of those signs that you see when you're sitting in a bathroom terrible. somewhere in somebody's house. Terrible. Yeah. Don't do you it. Know? 
No, so, nothing good is written on the yeah, stall or the wall of a it's bathroom. It's brutal. So, I, I mean, to distill it down is, is I think at all times you should be identifying who are the three to four people in my life. And these don't have to be your best friends. These are people that are well-respected that you can go to and get sound advice for in that transition. And then I think this is the other thing, and this is core no matter where you're at in life, is understanding that you are not defined by one specific thing that you do in your life, right? Like you're a complete human being that is made up of experiences and different skill sets. And so you're not just an athlete, right? You're, you're Chris book from Beloit, Wisconsin, who's also a husband, who's also a father, who's also a friend, who's also, you know, an active individual has these skill sets. And so I think one of the the biggest issues is we don't know who we are as people and we allow other people to define us from the outside. And so all of a sudden when that identity has been shattered and you're in transition, that's where people go to the dark places. Whereas if you start to do a lot of work of going, Hey, that one piece of my life changed. I'm no longer a professional athlete. I'm still an athletic person. Right. Um, but it doesn't define who I am. It's something that I did. It's it's part of the makeup of me, but I don't have to now wrestle with this performance and perfection dichotomy that if I have a bad game, does that mean I'm a bad person? We see that a lot with our athletes. Oh, man, that's you so know? true. And you you have to remove those two as going, I performed poorly in the at, at the office today, right? I made the wrong call in this recommendation as long as it wasn't unethical, like it doesn't change who I am as a human being. I need to get better. Um, but I think that so many people's identity is attached to performance. Um, so that's a long winded, you know, answer. Well, it's, it's true that, you know, we were talking about this actually this morning at, uh, at CBS, just value systems. And mm. it's one of these topics that people think is really soft. You know, you hear, you know, and when you're in school, they say, yeah, every business has a mission statement and a value <laughs> statement and all this. And, you know, I think, you know, for the majority of employees, I would say probably close to 100% of employees, they have no idea what the values of their business are. And and for us personally as people, I think a lot of people don't sit down and say, well, what are, what are my three to five values with which I want to live my life? But if you actually take the time to think about that, and, and that's the way you operate, like, I'm not a baseball player. I'm I'm somebody that is living out these three to five core principles that really matter to me. Well, those just go with you from one thing to the next. That that's your framework for success. It's not, well, did, did I win a game today? Did it? How was I with runners on base and all of that? Did I walk a bunch of people? So like that, that is something that's just so important for people to sit down and and write down for that matter. But I don't think they do, and I think there's a variety of reasons. Sometimes people just don't want to get that close to themselves. It's it's a scary thing to to look at, but you have to have that framework for your life. Otherwise, you're just going to be defined by these purely situational things related to these one-time performances and you're going to dig yourself a hole really, really quick. So transitioning out, what I think is really cool is what you've done with, uh, with your company, Athletes Wealth Management. Is it athletes or athlete wealth management? Athlete. You know, I, I should have done more homework we, we on that. We always get the plural though. So we I might know, just change our fault. name. We've just dropped it to AWM, you know? Yeah. Well, first, first of all, every time you're here, you have another cool AWM piece of clothing on our article of clothing. So I'm going to need to talk to somebody about that. We we can get you some apparel. Yeah. I, I, I think I might need yeah. something. I, I need to, I, you walked in today and looked at me and said, what are you wearing? So to which you told me you were retired at the, at the young age of, you know, what are you? 34? I am 34 now. Yeah. 
Well, and yeah. t- to be fair, I was, you know, I had a trip to the doctor's office today. I needed to be comfortable. Well, it's, it's a little early for that type of test in case the audience wants to know why Chris was at the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> the wheels are falling off and they have been for many, many years. I Actually, I, I wrote on the site, uh, I think it was this morning, that my, my number one initiative for next year is getting myself healthy. <laughs> and I've got a big hole to, deep out of the, oh, to dig man. out of there. I have not done a good job with my health <laughs> values and adhering to those. <laughs> Who knew jujitsu's bad for your neck? I'll be damned. <laughs> But so let's talk a little bit about the founding of your company and how you guys have grown. Because one, you guys have grown like crazy. And, and yeah. obviously, that's a testament to what you're doing, but just why the company exists, which I think we've alluded to a little bit. But that whole process is really fascinating, I think. Yeah. The, the original intent, as we've talked about it here, was just being born out of being an athlete and going through that transition. And then my experience at Morgan Stanley, very candidly, and working at you know as a young kid i was naive and so what do you do like most people you go what's the biggest brand name that you know this has got to be the answer at the time morgan stanley i think was number one as far as size in the financial services world they always flip back and forth with merrill lynch and and i thought this is how that work out (laughs) yeah this is this is where you need to go to be able to help people with their money and what i quickly realized is this is a sales industry. You know, there's a famous book that says, I think it's called uh, where all the customers yachts. And it's pointing to the fact that it's, it's really all of the financial industry that has all the money taking it from clients and fees and those type of things. And so that was a, that was a real uh, forming experience when every Monday it was have a product company come in and tell you of the trip you could win or the incentives that you could have but it wasn't. Hey, let's sit down and talk about your expertise. Let's talk about Think your about CFP. That for a minute. The financial crisis happens because the financial industry is not set up to actually be an advocate for the consumer or the client. You know, it's, they're Lord. representing their own self interest in the interests of the shareholders, and so that was a situation where I was like, yeah, yeah, we'll get to your CFP, your Certified Financial Planning designation. Three years down the road, once you've proven that you'll make this company money. So it was just a fascinating deal. And at the same time, uh, I'm a dreamer and and I had sold my brother uh, to leave very candidly, like his dream situation. He's he's up in Northern California. He's a little bit of a hippie. So he's living in Berkeley, <laughs> driving into the wine country where he worked out of their office, uh, an office in the wine country two days a week, just a huge wine lover. But I had convinced him. I said, you're like making corporations lots of money. Why don't you come down here and start working with the individual? You gave him the evil man talk? Oh, man. He's, you know, so I convinced this guy to leave the Bay Area where he can hug trees, cycle, and and drink wine. He moves to Phoenix. It's like 180 out in June. And uh, he's at Morgan Stanley, very candidly, for like three months. And he's looking at me going... What what have you gotten me into? This is not a good situation. <laughs> and uh, we got really lucky at the time. We were approached by a owner of a multifamily office. I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know that there was even private, independent, registered investment advisors. Like financial advisor, I thought was a financial advisor, right? Come to find out there's about 300,000 people that can use that title and we really started to ask the question, where do really wealthy people invest their money? Not, not rich athletes or, or, you know, 
rich entertainers. Like but generational like wealth type Generational stuff. wealth when you think of Rockefeller, right? You think of those iconic names. All of a sudden you learn of this family office, multifamily office of, hey, we're going to hire privately all of the experts that we know have their only responsibility is to do what's in our best interest. Makes a lot of sense. You kind of just assume that's the case. And so we had a privilege to go work for a company um, that was set up that way. And the founder was one of the original certified financial planners back in the seventies. And so that really formed and shaped the way in which we thought of helping clients, which is, it's so funny. Cause you're like, yeah, of course, but this is just not how it's set up is, let me get to know you, what's important to you, what you want to accomplish, who you are as people, who are the important people in your life, what do you, where are you at currently, let's bridge the gap between where you're at today and where you want to go, right? It's just planning 101. It's, it's no different. But in the financial world, everybody always starts with trying to sell you products, not with what are you trying to accomplish in your life and let's create a plan and then fill it in with the, with the products that you need after the fact. Oh, and by the way, we should be compensated in a way that there's no conflicts of interest so that you actually know you're paying for advice, not, not getting sold things throughout the process that, that somebody has, you know, a bad incentive. So that was the structure in which we had set up. And the other thing that we did is I think we just didn't know, like we weren't smart business people. I was a scrappy kid from ASU. All I knew was, is like, if you really care about people and, um, and educate, right? Like our marketing plan, if you could call it, that was literally figure out what people were having issues with and just help them. And don't worry about the money. Like, I can't tell you how many people we've given free advice to that who knows if it ever came back, but it was literally, it was like, there is a need in the market. Thanks to this whole like way that the industry set up, let's just start helping people. And you know what? They started paying us for it. And so it sounds so like, I don't know, easy or cliche, but that was really the intent of we really just want to help people um, and do it in a, in a environment that they don't have to worry about conflicts of interest. And so that's, that's kind of where we started on the journey. And like you said, we're grown, we're growing at like a 50% clip um, year over year. And, and we Jeez. don't see that slowing down anytime soon. How do you manage all that growth though? Because you know, there's, and I guess every founder goes through this, but you know, your company grows great, but, You've got something, a skill, a core competency that you're really good at. And now all of a sudden, you've got to run this business too, which yeah. has organizational dynamics and regulatory issues and all this back office stuff you got to deal with. Yeah. It's right. I think if, if you're an entrepreneur listening to this podcast. And why wouldn't you? Yeah. Why would you not? I mean, it's, it's the book. Let's go. It's a podcast of note. The the speaking of books, I think it's so many entrepreneurs have referenced it before, but it's the E-Myth Revisited, right? Like you have to start to think scale. In the very beginning, you're so worried about just getting customers, but it's if you really want to have a huge impact and to be able to scale systems, processes, hiring expertise, right? You can't wear multiple hats forever, and it was one of the things that we lay out and we put this out there with our clients and it's, it's front and center is a desire for our company is to create a company that's going to outlast its founders. And so from the very beginning, we've built in this culture of 
can we try to actually anticipate where we're going to be six months down the road and hire for that? And I don't know if that's the most prudent example of what to do, but we really try to think where, where do we want to be six months down the road and we've resourced for that. And so it's make no mistake about it. The difference between growing a business in the sense of having to acquire clients and service those clients is a much different skill set than managing a team of employees. And to your point, we're regulated by the SEC and we deal with things now like cybersecurity. I mean, understanding cybersecurity is something I would have never been concerned with when I was just a financial advisor, but those are the type of things that we have to deal with, right? We're dealing with arguably our industry is actually the most dangerous industry with client information. We have everything you need to steal your identity. And so cybersecurity is something that we have to take serious. So I think it's, it's number one being very ruthlessly, ruthlessly realistic with what your skill set is. And then if you don't have it, hiring somebody that you trust to handle it and stop thinking that you like, you got to check your ego at the door and hire the right people and not let money drive every decision of how you could line your pocketbook. I think that's one thing that I've been really thankful with my partners about is we've built this culture that we're going to invest in our, in our resources instead of worried about just lining our own pockets. And I just like, we always talk about play the long game, play the long game, play the long game. That's we say it every single day. And it's like, I could have a more comfortable lifestyle with my wife and my kids and probably live in a nicer house in a certain area. But if we just keep reinvesting in that business, you know, Lord willing down the road, we'll have a really nice lifestyle. So I just think it's prepare where you're going to be six months from now, realize what your skill sets are and then hire great. Well, and it's such a heavy amount of discipline that it takes to do that too. You know, to your point, yeah, you can, you could go have an amazing house and, and all of these seeming trappings of luxury, but at what cost? You know, it's it's a a far more disciplined, a far more prudent play to reinvest in the business in the long term, your point, than just to chase some fleeting pleasure right now that, yeah, it might look really cool, but you're gonna be the same person when you wake up every morning. Like it doesn't doesn't really change that much. So a hundred percent. I think that that's the illusion too of what social media has done for what people think owning a business and, and <laughs> being an entrepreneur is, is just, it's just ridiculous. Right. In the sense that take like Gary Vaynerchuk who people always reference is, Oh, you can build a business online. It's like, but most people, if you ask him, Hey, do you know his story? They've got no idea that he was, essentially apprenticed in his dad's wine shop until he was a certain age, right? He actually was a wine expert who wine library who throws on wine library. Right. And this is, I think 2007, we're in 2018. Most people didn't know who Gary V was till two years ago. That's not an overnight success. That's a, it's a 15 year success. Right. And he always says, you got to put the work in. And I think it's, it's one of those things. It's not that you have to grind your life away, but you can't replace hard work. Well, and you also can't appreciate the satisfaction from the hard work. Like we, we chase a big check and think that's going to be the satisfaction, 
but you're not going to really be happy until you learn to love the process of getting there. And I, I know a lot of really smart people have said that in probably a variety of different ways. You know, like Coach KO would always say, love the process. But like, until you get up every day and love the grind, like you're never going to be happy with, with the end results. Like, you know, in, in my previous life, I, I was around a lot of billionaires and they were friggin' miserable all the time. And it's because you, you chase this number, you chase this, you know, this number next to a B. And it's like, well, geez, Icon's got two more billion than I do. I got to go run him down. And, th- and then you're Carl Icon. And then it's like, well, you know, Bezos has this much money. I got to run, like, I'm never going to be, be anything as a human being until I have Jeff Bezos money. It's like, so in this world of 7 billion people, what you're saying is that the only way to be happy is to be the one person that's on top. Yeah. What? I think it goes back. That's awful. It goes back to that clarity conversation, right? And I think this is so true for whether you're for your business or for you as an individual, if you don't have clarity on who you are as a person, who you are as a company and what you're trying to achieve, you're going to be running somebody else's race and you're going to end up at a destination that you never want to be at. And it's going to be miserable, right? So it's, we're so busy and worried of like, I've got to get to the next thing that you don't slow down to evaluate those deals. And it's perfect timing, right? Like we're, we're headed into the new year. And so a lot of people will We'll start this process of goals. And one of the most influential books that was just released, I think, in the past month that's been so good is Atomic Habits by James Clear. And he really blends the psychology and the neuroscience of, of habit formation. But what he starts with is, is the reason so many f- people fail with goals is because their goals aren't actually aligned with who they are as people. It's identity and it's clarity of values. It's, you know, it's not about... I need to lose 10 pounds and get in the gym three times a week. It's, it's identifying like I'm a healthy person and therefore because I'm a healthy person, healthy people eat a certain way and live a certain lifestyle because if you just set goals there, it's temporary, right? It's okay. You lose 10 pounds and it's like, Oh, well, am I happy or not? I've made $5 million. Am I happier or not? Am I now you just move it to the next. And so you're almost like, like delaying yourself from being happy until you reach a certain destination. And so there's, it's always the next thing is a going to the process of, no, I'm this type of person that lives a certain lifestyle and certain goals will come out of that. And I just think that that clarity, we don't spend enough time doing that when we should. Yeah, thinking about who you are. And it's funny, you make me think of um, a really good book I read this last year called Originals by, uh, by Adam Grant. And one of the anecdotes in that book was about parenting. And what they find is that when you're looking for your children to adapt good habits, you have to praise kind of who the child is versus what they did. So it's like, you know, like for us, let's, let's say one of, our, one of our guys shares with his brother. You don't say good job sharing with your brother, you say something to the effect of uh, you're such a good boy and good boys share with their brother. Like, like so you, you kind of reinforce this idea that, you know, you're a nice guy. You're, 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 you're a sweet kid. You're not just the person that shares. Like, and so it kind of takes away this idea of being purely transactional, being a little bit more existential. I got oddly deep. Um, okay, so one of the things that's cool about your business is you, you've grown like crazy. You haven't dropped a single name yet, and, and you represent some seriously major <laughs> names in the professional baseball world. And so you're growing like crazy. 
is the goal to continue just to grow the business or what is your biggest aspiration as it pertains to that? It's a good question. We, we wrestle with this a lot. The short answer is we have no, we have no plans to stop growing the core business of private investment and wealth management of helping clients, you know, manage, protect and, and grow their wealth the way in which that changes is just from a business mentality is I think we've really found the people we love working with, which are professional athletes and then entrepreneurs slash business individuals. And to drive that deeper is athletes, entrepreneurs, and business people who have a certain worldview that they want to be wise with their money. And they also believe that money gives them an ability to have a huge impact on their families, the community and the world at large. So it's not just money for the sake of self-consumption, but we're really passionate about finding people that see money as an asset um, for huge impact and change. And so the way in which we're changing as a company is the opportunity to not be focused on having to go get more clients necessarily. I think that's just is going to continue to happen, but how do you go deeper with the same client? So as our clients go through life transitions and evolve, what are ways in which we can help meet the needs of that same client? Because so at, at every stage of their life, so at, to speak. at every stage of their life and in different ways. And so sticking on the athlete conversation, one of the things that we've realized was in this world of social media and platform, one of the biggest issues for an athlete is post-career. You're done at 35 years old. What am I going to do next? And there hasn't been a good, good translation. And that's why you see so many former athletes working in the sports world. And it's like, are you doing that because you love being a scout or a coach? Or is it just because that's where your relationships were and you, that's only your skill set? So how do we actually help set our clients up with opportunities and platforms. And so one of the things we've talked a lot about is it's not only about just making money, but how do you start to think about your owning your, your, your life as a business? How do you start to think about yourself as the CEO of your own life, right? Or your own career. And so baseball in this time is, is a, is a income stream, but at some point that income stream is going to disappear. So what are you passionate about? What skills do you need to develop? What, relationships and maybe you've made so much money it's not about money it's it's a philanthropic endeavor and so I think going deeper on those deals with our clients and then same thing on the business side we've had some some clients that have exited their businesses and they're kind of asking the same questions like what do I do next and really becoming more business slash life career transition advisors is something that how the business is evolving. So we're, we're not your typical financial advisor. That's just going to talk to you about investments and taxes and insurance and estate planning. We're literally going to figure out like, what do you want to do with your life and how do we make that happen? Yeah. Now, now we're, I don't know everything, but we've built such a deep network, um, that kind of, what do you want to do? We'll connect you to that person. Um, and so that that's the ways that we're evolving as a company. Interesting. So for you, what's a perfect day look like right now? And then I'm going to ask the second question. What does a typical day look like? I'm glad you made that distinction because 
they're they're two different things. It, not completely different, but it's there's always this progress. So when we think of wealth, I think of wealth not just as is financial capital, but but first and foremost spiritual capital, relational capital, physical capital, um, social capital, and then financial capital. And so we take our health very serious, and I say we because it's it's my wife Sadie and me, and and we. Um, value that very much. So ideal morning, typical morning, it's get up. I usually wake up um, around 5 a.m., work out 5.30 to 6.30, work out at an awesome gym called Journey Training down in Tempe, Arizona. And just, I love it because of the community. It's not like, I mean, Tanner, my trainer's awesome, um, but it's more about the people that you're around. I, I love doing that. So 5.30, 6.30, wake up, work out. And then after that, um, I spent about 30 minutes in, uh, I'm a devout follower of Jesus, uh, if that's okay to say on a podcast. Um, I don't think a lightning bolt's going to strike you down. <laughs> yeah, a lightning bolt might, might not, but some legal you know, thing might. Uh... You know, it's funny, just about every single <laughs> guest I've had on like late in the interview has has said that and then had the same thing like, Am I allowed to say that? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's who you are. That's that's okay. It's uh, yeah. For some of us, it's yeah. It's uh, shows shows issues going on in the world, right? But so I jump into scripture for about a half hour. It's that's a combination of of reading and then meditation and prayer. Uh, and so try to do that every morning. The kids will wake up. I'll see them very shortly in the morning. I'll see Sadie and the kids in transition when they're headed out to to go to a different gym for about a half hour, jump in the car at 7.30, in the office by 8 a.m., and then and then off to work. And so uh, from 8 a.m. to however the day kind of progresses, is it's usually an 8 to 5, 8 to 6 type of day that's really hard. And I'll talk about what a typical day is from an ideal day. And an ideal day is another book that I, that I just loved. It's called when, um, and it's actually about like how as human beings, we operate and work. So the way that my brain works is I would love to do a lot of my analytical stuff early in the mornings from that, like eight to 10 or 11 AM. So when we're doing investment management, client plans, anything that's high attention to detail, to do that in the morning and then the afternoon is a lot more relationship, whether it's meetings, phone calls, creative stuff, um, do that in the afternoon. And, and something that was super impactful I've heard a long time ago was, you know, Warren Buffett reads four to six hours a day. And so that's a big part of what we do is I think what makes us unique in our industry is we actually take our expertise extremely serious. And so advanced designations and continuing education is huge. So I actually do spend about two hours a day um, reading, you know, and and in a perfect world, I wish it was closer to four of of reading different case studies, expanding our our expertise, because that's what we're getting paid to do. Um, So I spend a lot of time doing that hopefully home by dinner. And then really when I get home, it's not something I'm great at, but I try to really disconnect. I try to shut the phone off. I try to be present for the kids um, and for Sadie and, uh, you know, just play with them three and one years old. So it's, uh, they're a lot of fun. They're crazy. Uh, Bedtime. They're good kids. uh, There's the ideal bedtime and then there's the reality of how that goes. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that's a, that's kind of a mixture of the typical or the ideal day. 
I'd say the typical day in my business is really unique because we're huge on relationships. So I spend about a hundred, hundred nights a year on the road in hotels. So to say a typical day or week is just not real in my world because we're going to our clients. I think that's one of our differentiators is we don't expect you to fit into our schedule, into our life. Um, our clients are very busy. They're doing a lot of what they think is important. And so we try to integrate into the client's lives. We don't expect you to stop what you're doing at one in the afternoon and come to our office. It's kind of the other way around. So we do a lot of late dinners. We do a lot of breakfast. We do a lot of flying all over the country to spend time with them. Um, so that changes a lot, but I would say the cores throughout our typical day that I still hit is I do work out every single day. I read and pray every single day. Um, so those are kind of the consistents. You know, you, you see all the cool photos, or at least I see all the cool photos, you know, all the, all the games you're at and, and all the people you're with, you don't see the travel and the time away from the family with <laughs> that. And may, maybe it's just a sign that we're getting old, but that stuff really, really wears on you. And it's, and, it, and it's tough, but I guess maybe to our previous point, that's why the value system is so important because for things to be able to continue when you're not there, you know, and for you to be able to pick up when you come back that way, you have to have that structure and framework in place. It really is. I think it's, there's this tension, right? I think the notion of balance is, is not true. I think it's priority management. I think it's values driven and then it's priority management. And so I was very blessed to, to marry an incredible uh, woman who we are, we, we have the same values and we have a, we have a lot of uh, work to do on the communication, but we try to communicate well when I'm traveling. And it's, it's part of what Sadie and I have also talked about. It's important for us, for our kids to wake up and see dad go to work every day and to know that there is this commitment level. Like they understand it's not easy when I walk out the door and go to work. And um, It's discipline though. And they see that and they sense it. They do. And and I don't think it's a bad thing, right? Is it's it's interesting. I had heard some study that we actually spend more leisure time today, and then more time with our kids and family than you know fifty years ago. And people feel like that's we're working all the time, and it's like, no, we actually just live in this incredible world where where you like wealth is so high that it's you have this time to do leisure and, and, and freedom as opposed to back in the day, it was like, no, you had to work, right? Like there, you didn't eat if you didn't work in, yeah. in the industrial revolution. So it's, it's much more as I think Sadie and I've got a good view on it. And I'm, I'm privileged to be able to take them with me a lot on road trips, um, which is, which is helpful, but it goes back to that clarity of, of values and, and priorities, you know, Sadie and I will sit down in January and, go through a lot of that stuff of what's important with our family. What do I need to say no to? What do, what does she need to say no to? What does she want to do? And I think this is the one piece of advice I got for, for marriage advice for business people and for athletes is don't make the mistake of treating your wife or your spouse as she's just along for the ride, you know, yeah. like, because that's the hardest thing in that relationship when in business is you can start to run two different lives and become like roommates. And so I think it's a big thing is always asking Sadie, you know, 
are we on the same page? Do you feel like this is our, our life together or is this just you along for the ride? And when that happens, we've got to pull back and adjust. Yeah. And, and, and ask that until, I mean, ask that to the point of annoyance. Yes. Like, you can't over communicate that. Correct. Um, one, one thing that was fascinating to me that you said is you're talking about how we actually have more leisure time now. I think part of the reason that we don't feel like we do is because we're so incessantly distracted now, whether it's our phones or whatever else, you know, the boundaries between work and leisure time are perhaps more blurred than they were before. But, you know, I was reading something the other day, and, and I forget who said it, but he said, life isn't short. Life is sufficiently long. We just really screw, I'm paraphrasing, but we really screw up the way we spend our time. Yes. And I think it's totally true. You know, if you look at, you know, a 20-year-old now, for instance, and this isn't the bag on millennials, but spent a lot of time watching Netflix and whatever else. And a lot of time, you know, from from a time perspective, so much of that time is spent on things that don't necessarily support their goals. And it's like, yeah, rest is very important. We need to be deliberate with how we rest. And we need to be deliberate with certain things in our schedules. And, you know, you, you brought up the, the idea of your continuing education. A lot of people say, well, I don't have time to read and, and learn. It's like, well, okay, but that that's that's work. It might not be income-generating activity now, but that's an investment in the person and the business that you're going to have later on. And I think people don't make enough of a distinction as to how they deliberately invest time in themselves. I, you it's make, a big problem. You, you make me think of Jocko Willink, uh, Extreme Ownership. Uh, I'm listening to Underrated book. I uh, listened to this on Monday. We do it as a book. We just actually finished the book. So we take our employees. We do uh, a book club. Every two weeks we go through a chapter and just, you know, try to have communication. And it was it was chapter 12. It was his his last uh, kind of summary. And Jocko's just going off of, you know, when that alarm clock goes off at 4.30, when the three alarm, alarm clocks go off at 4.30 in the morning, it's discipline that gets you out of bed. And if not, you're mentally weak. But he brings <laughs> up his example in the SEALs. And I'm talking, like, we're already talking about the one percenters, right? I mean, he's talking Maybe about... Maybe even less than that. He's it's, like, how do you be like the, the elite one of, one. of the elite within the SEALs? And he said, what I figured out is, is if I want to clean my gear, if I want to work out, if I want to do these things, I have to get up early. And so it's like... Even with inside the Navy SEALs, he just said, you got to make time. You figure out what's important and you invest in yourself. And something else you said is, I don't think we're deliberate in the way that we rest. I know I'm not at times is rest is not binge watching Netflix. Rest is not going out on the weekends and having tons and tons of drinks and, and feeling exhausted, exhausted the next day is it's those things are fun and good, but you're not, you're not resting. You're not giving your brain space. And so I think yeah. it's, there's margin you got to have. There's there. no margin in people's lives. You know, it really is. And you know, to, to Jocko's point, like I, I love getting up early and I, I get racked with a lot of guilt if I don't get up, you know, like four or four thirty or something like that. And, and I, I have this kind of constant balance where I need to, I need to get up early and get stuff done, but I also need to rest and I need to be fresh. And then there's a quality issue you get of like, are you being as good as you could be because you're tired or whatever? And, you know, not all hours or minutes even are created equal. You know, that, that minute I spend at 10 o'clock at night working is probably not nearly as valuable as that minute I spend at five in the morning. That is so true. It goes, the book, when that I referenced, it's, 
he talked about it's a fascinating book because it also is super scary when it comes to the medical community. The amount of mistakes that get made in hospitals after lunchtime. And there's like all these stats of you. I don't know what to, well, you went and saw the doctor after lunchtime. So, you know, you weren't getting some major procedure, but it's essentially just saying, you know, when we're tired, we make mistakes. And so the efficiency of your, the effectiveness of two hours of work when you're refreshed is so different than grinding at the end of the night. And I, I crack up my buddies that work at like big four accounting firms and they burn these dudes out, right? Like 90 oh, hours, sure. they're up till 2 a.m. in the morning. I'm like, that doesn't work. It's you know? a diminishing return oh, to the point of no return. It's terrible. But the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. What people hear is, what people forget is, you got to actually do the work, the two hours of effective work in the morning, you know, yeah. and a lot of people are just, they don't, they don't structure their day. They're not proactive. And so it's so much time is wasted. You know, yes. personal leadership is just not something that that's been developed. And it's the book by Brendan Bouchard, high performance habits was, is one of those formation books that you really start to do a lot of reflection and go, Maybe I actually just mismanage my time. Yeah. And if I don't have the skill set, I probably need to develop it. That's terrifying because you know, time is the one thing we don't get back. We can make more money. The market can go on a run and you know, I can compound some interest here, but I'm never getting that time back no matter what. Yeah. All right. So you've listed off a couple books here. And this is the last question. What book? Well, how should I ask this? What book do I need to read? And that's just selfishly. It's an it's a little bit of an obscure book because I don't think it's probably like a New York bestseller, but there's a book called What's Best Next by Matt Perman. And it's the culmination of all the personal productivity books of getting things done, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and it also integrates from my, my belief and standpoint, um, it, it dives a lot into, to mission and values. And one of the biggest mistakes he lays out that we said is, is people are searching for your mission and it's actually already been defined. And that's, that's where one of the biggest mistakes is, is, is like, God's actually created you in a certain way for a certain mission and you need to live in, in, you need to live in out of that truth. And so what's best next is, is the book I'd recommend that you specifically need to read. Cool. And so if anybody listening wants to find out more about you, where can they find you? So typical social channels. I'm on uh, Twitter, Instagram at Eric Averill, which is E-R-I-K-A-V-E-R-I-L-L. Or you can send me an email pretty easy. It's eric at ericaverill.com. And uh, I'll make sure all those links are in the show notes and would love to uh, follow up with, with anybody. It's awesome. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you. It's been fun. Absolutely. That's Eric Averill. Definitely give him a buzz if you uh, are interested in what he does, and you should be. We go back a little ways here, and uh, <laughs> we've been through some battles over the years. So uh, good to have him back. So to all of you, hope you guys have a wonderful week, wonderful month. Don't know uh, when we're recording next here with the holiday schedule. Any background noise you hear here is because uh, our 110-pound golden retriever just ran in the room. (laughs) 
But uh, any, wishing all of you guys safe, happy holiday, and uh, here's to grabbing 2019 by the throat and squeezing. Go get them.